In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. Today, a slightly more personal introduction to our topic. Last week, we reported on the latest IPCC report. If you listen to that episode, you know the climate news is bad. Not just bad, terrible. If you declined to listen, it was probably because you already knew how awful it was and you didn't want to sink into despair. And I don't blame you. Unfortunately, I am personally not allowed to just quit covering these things because everything is hopeless, even if it feels like nobody really wants to listen to them. And so I end up hunting for new hope in this fight, for a new way to look at the problem. We often get requests for climate episodes from listeners, and we got a few last week, asking us to talk about what we can do personally, how each of us can make a difference. Because we all want to solve this, but we all feel powerless. And the official answer to that question, what can I do, for many institutions, is to consider your carbon footprint and reduce it. But what if there was a better way to measure what each of us can do to make a difference? What if the concept of the carbon footprint was actually taking our eyes off the ball? What if guilting ourselves endlessly over how much red meat we eat or how often we use our car instead of walking was ignoring the real actual differences that many of us are making right now or could make tomorrow in the fight to, I mean, not to sound traumatic or anything, but in the fight to save humanity. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Emma Patti is a writer, a climate journalist, and the creator of a new way to think about your own contributions to the climate crisis. Hi, Emma. Hi, Jordan. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Maybe first, before we get to your proposal, which I think is so interesting, can you define what a carbon footprint is and and where did it come from, that term? Sure. So a carbon footprint is basically looking at an individual's, you know, carbon impact uh, on the environment. And so it's a simple calculation. It was created sort of in the 90s, derived from this idea of the ecological footprint. And it really was being used more as an academic term and as a term to help policymakers. It, it wasn't meant to become a household measuring stick. How did it do that? Well, Sometime in, in sort of the early 2000s, BP created this very large advertising campaign that popularized the idea of the personal carbon footprint. And it kind of pushed people to calculate their own footprints. In fact, if you try to Google, you know, calculate my carbon footprint, you will likely be sent to a website paid for by fossil fuel companies. Hmm. Um, you might have to dig a little to find out 
who exactly is is hosting that website. But if you dig enough, you will find that likely that website is hosted by by a, your friendly uh, gasoline company. So they what they wanted to do was create this idea that people should go on a low carbon diet. Mm-hmm. This is a strategy that's been used a lot. It's been used in the tobacco industry. Um, it's been used with plastic pollution. So a lot of times companies will push individuals to make different choices instead of looking at it more as a as corporate responsibility. And since you say this was never created to be an individual's guide to how they approach climate, what is the result then of, of framing one person's contribution to the climate crisis or lack of contribution via a carbon footprint? What does it mess? Well, I think first what we have to understand is that a lot of what goes into your carbon footprint, you don't have control over. So, you know, how you heat and cool your home may be decided by your landlord, by your apartment building. Right. Um, it may be decided by your municipality. You know, if you have to travel for work, that may not be something you have control over. So if you need to drive your kid to a to a school instead of, you know, biking them, that may not be something that the weather in your area permit. So a lot of we're telling people to take personal responsibility for things they they don't have any choices around. And I think that's really problematic. But also the outcome of this is that people who are concerned about climate change have started to focus on things like hanging. And I'm speaking from personal experience here. This is exactly how I started my climate anxiety journey was I stopped using the dryer. I started biking more. And I would turn off lights when I left the room. And so I had this idea that I was doing the right thing. Um, But instead, all of my energy was going towards remembering to hang my clothes out um, instead of putting them in the dryer and remembering to sort of give myself enough time that my clothes would get dry before I needed them. When all of that energy would do so much more when put towards things like climate activism, you know, climate journalism, or just even talking about climate change. So why don't carbon footprints paint a full picture of our contributions or, again, lack of contributions to the climate crisis? Yeah. So when I talk about the idea of the climate shadow, um, I often talk about these two examples, right? One person flies weekly for work. They live in a big home. You know, maybe they have multiple kids. And here's this other person. They're a, a, a young single person They live in a small apartment and they walk to work every day. So clearly the person who's flying all the time, living in a big home, is going to have a much bigger carbon footprint than the person who lives alone in a small apartment and walks to work. Sure. But now let's add a wrinkle. The weekly flyer is a climate scientist. And so when they're flying, they're doing it to travel the world and talk about the climate crisis. And the second person who lives alone in a small apartment actually works for a marketing agency the kind of marketing agency who created the the BP ad, right? Mm-hmm. Personalizing the carbon footprint. So who in that is contributing more to the climate emergency? Who actually is having a bigger impact? And that's what led me to this idea of a climate shadow. So explain to me what a climate shadow is and how it works. And again, I understand that this won't be able to be calculated as as purely, and I'm, I'm trying to say that in quotation marks, as a carbon footprint. But first of all, just what is it? Where did it come from? Sure. So it's a concept that I created to help everyone in, visualize how their life's choices influence the climate emergency. 
And frankly, I think I created it mostly for myself because, you know, I'm a mom. I have a young kid. I'm having another kid this summer. Mm -hmm. I'm very busy. I don't always have time to, you know, hang out my clothes or, or bike my kiddo to daycare. And I wanted to understand where my energy should be going. You know, a big part of being a busy parent is really intense prioritization. Yes. And so for me, it was this idea of like, well, what truly matters? And if I could take the sum of all that, what would that look like? So I think of my climate shadow as this kind of large shape and it stretches out behind me and it tallies everything I do, right? It tallies what I say. It tallies how I invest my money. It tallies how many children I choose to have, how I vote. So that was kind of the original idea behind the climate shadow. How does it account for that kind of stuff that you can't measure? So I see it more as a type of personal reckoning, um, a kind of a moral inventory. And I think actually that, you know, as much as we have been trained to love metrics, I think that actually as humans, we don't need to have a number to understand this stuff. We, we are actually intuitively very in tuned to the sort of totality of our intentions and our actions. If someone wanted to start this, and again, I know we don't have to calculate it down to a number or, or anything like that, but you mentioned that it, it includes absolutely everything. So how do you begin to calculate that kind of stuff? So the climate shadow covers three major categories. One is consumption, uh, one is choices, and then one is attention. So consumption would really include your carbon footprint, right? Like what you buy, where you live, your heat, your cooling, um, flying, driving, the things we're, we're more regularly thinking about when it comes to climate change. This, your second choice is really important. You know, that's going to look like things like where you bank. That's going to look like how you invest your money. That's going to look like who you vote for and also who you work for. And that's something I find people are very reluctant to talk about um, when they're thinking about their impact relating to climate change. And then the third, I think, is in some ways the most important even though it's so nebulous, and that's attention. I think of a lot of us asked ourselves, okay, in the past seven days, how much of my attention has gone towards the climate crisis? And how does that like line up with, for example, my Netflix viewership? I think we would be sort of astounded to see that most of us are spending less than 10 or five minutes on the climate crisis. Yeah, attention is a really interesting one. I find the concept fascinating, especially as a way to integrate this kind of stuff into daily life. So where does it come from? Yeah, absolutely. When I think about attention, I think about like if Greta Thunberg had decided to devote her attention to lowering her carbon footprint, right? Like maybe she's going to like, I'm not going to eat meat anymore. Um, I'm not going to have dairy products. I'm, I'm sure she already does those things. But and let's say she had put all of her energy towards that and had not created Fridays for Future. Like that would be an example of attention being spent in a way that has a, a very small impact. What about the folks at BP who popularized the personal carbon footprint? How would they fare under a climate shadow? Um, as part of my work as a climate journalist, I have spoken with a lot of people who work in the fossil fuel industry. And, you know, as you can imagine, they're normal, decent people, just like the rest of us. But I do hear over and over that even when it seems like actions are changing within the fossil fuel industry, mindsets are not changing at all and intentions aren't really changing. Um, so I think that does speak to 
kind of an emphasis on, well, here, let's focus on what we can calculate, but let's ignore what truly matters. Mm-hmm. And I did recently speak with a fossil fuel worker who kept insisting, you know, well, I drive a Tesla. I, I, I was an early Tesla adopter. I've been driving Teslas since the beginning. And he was so earnest. He just wanted me to know, you know, he, he drives a Tesla. And I think that speaks so much to the kind of cognitive dissonance that so many of us approach the climate crisis with, where we see ourselves as good people who really care. And yet we then are sort of turning a blind eye to things like our work or our larger choices or just that moment at the you know holiday party where you choose to stay silent instead of speaking up. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. Let's talk practical stuff for just a moment. If someone's listening to this and they think this is a concept that might really work for them, how do they go about starting it? Like, is this something, and I'm, I know you can probably do it in your head, is this something people should write down? Is there a tally they should create or is this just like a mindset? That's a good question. For me, I'm, I am developing sort of a, a jumping off points to start to think about your climate shadow because for me too, it's been a learning. I mean, I didn't realize that where you have your checking account has um, has an emissions impact. Right. So there's so many little nuances people don't realize. But I do think at the end of the day, it is a mindset. And I do think it's something that you carry with you. It's certainly something that I carry with myself um, when trying to make decisions about how I spend my time and about sort of where I spend my money um, and my energy. How do you go about taking a concept like this and getting it out there properly? I mean... It's great. You're reaching our listeners. That's awesome. I read your piece from Mike, which was great. How do new approaches to the climate crisis actually start to circulate? What do you need to get this off the ground? You know, honestly, I worried about that too um, when I first published this piece. I, you know, for one thought that people would say, well, this is just, you know, expecting too much of people. Um, And I also thought that, you know, nobody was going to give up the carbon footprint. But interestingly enough, my experience has been that whenever people hear about it, they respond with a lot of relief. And I think that intuitively people feel that the climate crisis is so great and the tool, the carbon footprint that they've been given is like so meaningless. So they welcome the idea that there's this really different way to think about it. And I think that kind of speaks to how terrible it feels to feel helpless in the face of all of this and to intuitively know that whether or not you eat that hamburger for lunch will not make any difference to what's happening in our world. And so this has kind of given people another tool. And I've been amazed to see how many climate educators and climate scientists are now referring to it and now speaking about it. I've had professors include it in their curriculum. I mean, it it really has sort of been passed hand to hand around the globe. That's been really inspiring for me to, to see that sometimes just a new way of thinking about things can have such an impact. 
So we'll link to your mic piece in the show notes of this episode, but uh, you mentioned you're, you're developing stuff. Are you working on a website? Should there be a place where people can go and, yeah, I know we're not going to calculate it down to a number, but but that people can interact with the things they do in their life and kind of, you know, for instance, learn about stuff like bank accounts influencing uh, your carbon footprint? Yeah. So that is something that I'm working on. And, you know, my my end goal is to partner with some climate influencers who certainly have a lot more traction than I do. But I, I am also totally okay if someone just hears about this concept, reads about this concept, and just like puts it in their back pocket, takes it home with them. I truly believe that the power of contagion is one of the most important things we have to keep in mind with the climate crisis. And before I was a climate journalist, I actually was a journalist that wrote about women's health um, and psychology. And then one day I was sitting in a mom's group and one of the moms said, oh, I'm terrified about climate change. And I think that it's, you know, possible that my child will die from the effects of climate change instead of old age. And I was so shocked to hear her say that. I thought she must be wrong. I, I could not get it out of my head. And later that night, lying in bed, I Googled, you know, when, will my child, you know, what will happen in 2080? And it was horrifying. I really quickly found out that she's, I mean, she's obviously can't know with accuracy, but she's not entirely wrong. Mm-hmm. And so does that woman know? I mean, I, everything changed because of that. I've changed so many of my choices. I changed careers. I started focusing exclusively on climate change. So it, I, you know, the cl- climate shadow came up with that. Does that woman who sat in that mom's group years ago, does she realize the impact of her words? Talking about climate change is truly the most important thing all of us can do. And so if someone doesn't have two hours to spend tinkering on a website, figuring out their climate shadow, that's totally fine. Put it in your back pocket and it's something that will stay with you. And it truly is an internal inventory. It's not to be judged by others. It's a, it's a guiding principle for how you can determine your own decisions. The last thing I wanted to ask is kind of about that. Talking about it is one thing. What are some of the other really low-hanging fruits that people don't tend to realize can make a big difference to the climate crisis? Because a lot of people are listening to this and yeah, they might not be ready to change jobs or give up flying or whatever, but what's, what's the easy stuff that if everybody did it, it would make a difference? Well, I can quote Susan Hassel from my piece who really did say, don't bother calculating your, your carbon footprint, just have one fewer child, you know, don't drive in a car, avoid plane travel, use green energy and, and stop eating animal products. Of course, I know, you know, that's probably not what you meant by low hanging fruit. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think that a lot of times there's ways that we can make incremental differences. I mean, if someone says, what's the one thing I can do, I'm going to say, talk about climate change. Right. 100%. If they say, well, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not ready to do that or I'm already doing that, what's the next thing I can do? I think a lot of it's going to be about doing half steps, right? Like start eating meat only one day a week. And, you know, instead of people often say, I can't give up flying. Okay, but can you fly one time a year? Can you give up one flight a year? So oftentimes it's just that shift. And the reason I'm saying that is not because that shift alone will make a difference, but because there is so much contagion in that shift. If you just simply fly one less time a year and tell your friends and family why you're making that choice, it can have an enormous impact. But I would also tell people if truly want to make an impact with climate change, 
and they don't have a lot of time and a lot of energy. Look for places where you have a lot of influence. That may be like your child's daycare. That may be your work. Mm -hmm. It may be telling your extended family, hey guys, let's not fly to Mexico this year. Let's all drive somewhere local. So a lot of times when we look at sort of exponential difference, there are places where we can have enormous impact that don't actually require that much from us. Emma, thank you so much for taking the time today and for this concept. We will indeed put it in our back pockets. I hope our listeners will too. Thanks so much, Jordan. Emma Patti, writer, climate journalist, creator of The Climate Shadow. That was The Big Story. For more from us, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. Find us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. Write to us anytime, thebigstorypodcast, all one word, at rci.rogers.com. If you have any ideas for a happy, heartwarming, entertaining story that we could give to you on a Friday, please send them in because Steph and I spent 15 minutes trying to think of one and everything is pretty bleak. You can find The Big Story in any podcast player you want. Hopefully you find it with a happy episode or two sometime soon. Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, doesn't matter. Pick your poison. If you have a smart speaker, you can ask it to play The Big Story podcast. There are plenty of ways to find us. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now.